All right, everybody, welcome to episode 32 of Tunes Mate. I'm Mark. And I'm Ray. And today, Ray had a chance to catch up with John Bermuda Schwartz, the drummer of Weird Al Yankovic. He actually has a new book that's out, and it's called Black and White and Weird All Over, The Lost Photographs of Weird Al Yankovic, 83 to 86. So, Ray, this is the time period right when Weird Al was starting up and then his mass explosion of popularity through Eat It and, and then up to an album called Polka Party, which John and I get into a discussion around that wasn't so popular. Yeah, that's exactly the time when a lot of folks, Weird Al Yankovic became a household name to a lot of folks, you know, folks who had maybe been listening to Dr. Demento or something before that knew of him, but this that's exactly that time period. Yeah, and this is the period I think a lot of people glamorize Weird Al Yankovic. You know, he's got mm-hmm. the wire rim glasses and the mustache, and I think recently it was featured on an episode of Stranger Things. Yeah, it's, it's the time that set his image. I mean, he can, you know, no matter what he does, he's always still that nerdy guy with glasses, right? I mean, even, you know, his biggest hit, White and Nerdy, kind of, you know, reflects the whole image that he has. And that's exactly the image that he got in that time period. Of course, you know, his, his breakout hit was Eat It and, um, you know, the other things like Like a Surgeon and stuff like that. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, documenting that era is significant. The idea that we're going to see photos from that era, we're going to hear stories from that era, we're going to learn about like sort of the, in essence, the crafting of Weird Al's image. Yeah. And there's a lot, I mean, in this book, and these, you know, talking with John, majority of this has never been seen before. He said there's been a couple shots that perhaps through the, you know, I Love Rocky Road video that were used through some promotional media shots. But what I thought was interesting is starting to talk to John, this thought started just formulating in my mind that John has always been the group's caretaker or the historian taking you know, all the audio all the the photos of all the shows and just keeping track of that. And he actually even said that at one time in the future, he's going to hand this to Weird Al's daughter to mm. keep it going. Mm-hmm. So I started thinking, like, does every band have that person? Is something that just lands on them? Yeah, that's a, I mean, that's a great question. I have no clue. Never really thought about it before, but it's a great question. It would make a really interesting project. Go out, interview bands, talk to bands, say, hey, does anybody in the band document things is sort of the band's historian of sorts you know the band's collector of everything to keep track of everything you know i gotta imagine there are some bands and nobody does it some bands may be ideologically opposed to it some punk style bands you know hell no we ain't saving nothing you know right you know it's you know history don't mean shit and we're not saving anything you know and but then you know you gotta think that at least for a significant amount of bands somebody does it and and it may even be that it's not somebody in the band so like you said john said he's going to hand this off to al's daughter you know I, i would imagine in a lot of cases you know the band is kind of involved in the process maybe one of them is the the documentarian and maybe there would be you would find some patterns there maybe you know the the bassist and the drummer tend to fill that role a little more or something. You know, I, I don't know. That's just kind of conjecture. But you might find where uh, one of the folks who work on the production crew or even the manager or uh, a child. I mean, that's that seems mm-hmm. like a really uh, a role where one of the, the kids of one of the band members would find a niche for themselves. Like, I'm on the road with mom or dad and or I am involved in what they're doing. I'm not maybe I'm not on the road, but I know of everything that's going on and I've got all this stuff. And it seems like a place where somebody's kid would would find a natural role for themselves. But, you know, that's sort of speculation at this point. Well, it's a good point, because recently 
as you were talking about, you know, going through that dialogue, it made me think about Wolfgang Van Halen. So, you know, Eddie Van Halen, as we know, passed away back in October and there's been some speculation. Well, Eddie has all these archives. What's going to happen with that? And recently Wolfgang on the Howard Stern show said that, well, him and Alex been rumored to go through everything, but it's a process. I mean, it would take a year to go through everything that's there. But then I started thinking, well, actually, Wolfgang now is, he kept saying, I'm going to keep my father's legacy or the name Van Halen alive because he's also creating his own music. So that is interesting how you're right. It, it seems like maybe not at the time, but later down the road, it's all about the legacy. Like Yoko Ono has been keeping John Lennon's legacy alive and keeping that going. You know, she's kind of the caretaker of all that. So I guess someone has to keep the torch going. That's interesting. Yeah. Uh, Wolfgang Van Halen's the one who came to my mind, too. So I think your connection there is right spot on. The, uh, and again, it, like you said, it, it may not be that it, it's happening in real time, but, it, you know, it's a thing where children have these photos letters, cards, you know, you name it, right? All kinds of little notes that are left around that they've saved or that, that just got thrown in a box. And then, as you said, after, after um, somebody passes away or even after they retire and maybe they're, you know, they're downsizing and they give it all to the kids or, you know, you know, any number of life events that might cause this to happen. The kids are the ones who sort of step in and say, hey, we got all this stuff. Let's check it out. And like you said, it may be one of the motivations here is I want to do my part to keep my mother, my father, you know, legacy going. And and part of it's also the personal connection that, you know, I still want to be, especially in the case of when somebody passes away, I still want to relive my life with somebody. And I want to feel that connection and that process of doing that, you know, gives you that. Yeah. And I think in this case with John in his book, we talked about that. What was the effort behind putting this book together? And a lot of it is just wanting to share with the fans something that has never been seen before. And mm -hmm. I think that's always the hope is even with Wolfgang is there's something in that vault. Maybe there's a, a hidden trap door somewhere with some gems of, of music mm -hmm. we've never heard before or photos like this. So this is a fan's dream because especially if it's an artist that's been around for a while and you're really hooked into them, you're always hoping that there's something more. So I think John hit it out of the park because the book did arrive. I was able to go through it and really dive into the book. And there are some really, really interesting photographs in this book for, especially for, for diehard Weird Al Yankovic fans. Well, at this point, Ray, let's just dive right into the interview, catch up with John, and we'll come back on the other side and wrap up the episode. All right, everybody, welcome to another episode of Tunes Mate. Have the honor of being joined by John Bermuda Schwartz. Hi there. Hey, John. So interesting thing, you've been up to a couple things since the last time we spoke. Seems you've got something new out there for fans to enjoy. Uh, well, I, I hope they enjoy it. I, I have put out a book. <laughs> I put out a book uh, of a bunch of old Al photos that nobody's ever seen, and it, it's out there just in time for Christmas and uh, is, is doing quite well, I understand. Yeah, so it's entitled Black and White and weird all over. Yep. That's the short title. So these are the lost photographs of Weird Al Yankovic. And we're talking about 83 to 86. Right. Okay. So this is an interesting time period because this was right before the the whole Eat It craze. Right. It was just prior to that. And, and, and Eat It is right in the middle of there. Mm -hmm. And then it ends with Polka Party. Right. Around there. And I was thinking about that because Polka Party is one of those Weird Al albums that 
is underrated. There's a lot of songs on there. I mean, one of the ones that always make me laugh, and I know one of the last tours that yourself and the band went out with Al was all the original songs. Right. The No Frills Tour, we called it. No Frills Tour. And one of the songs that always made me laugh was Don't Wear Those Shoes. Oh. <laughs> uh, yeah. 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 <laughs> it was a funny one. You know, it kind of, it was silly. But this was one of those albums, though. Was this the album that was hastily made? It wasn't as critically acclaimed? Am I true on that? Well, it was in the very beginning because of Al's popularity, you know, he sort of burst on the MTV scene and all that. We had an album mm-hmm. out every year for four years in a row, 83, 84, 85, wow. 86. And Polka Party in, in 86 was not a terribly successful album. In fact, it was a horribly unsuccessful album. It was uh, among mm-hmm. Al's worst-selling albums. And not and for no other reason, I don't know. I don't know why. I thought it was a good album as well. Yeah, I mean, it kicks off with James Brown, and then you had the, you know, the Addicted to Spuds always made me laugh. And so I, I think there's some good ones on here. And then there's even, I know we're close to Christmas time, you know, Christmas at Ground Zero. I mean, what a classic. Yep. Uh, it still gets played once in a while. Exactly. So, you know, I'm kind of starting backwards. So the photographs lead up to this time period, but then we start from 83. And during the 83 time period, and I'm looking at a couple photos here for our podcast audience, close your eyes and imagine you're looking at some photos. So we'll try to paint a picture for you. But this book has, as you said, many photos that no one has seen before. And what's interesting is, you know, you, so you start out the cover. Is the cover on the book, is that straight from the Rocky Road video? No, well, that's that was shot uh, while we were doing the Ro- I Love Rocky Road video, and that's one of my photos. Right. None, none of the photos it, in the book were actually, you know, f- screen grabs at all. These are actually my film photographs. Right. As the drummer, and we were talking about this in our pre-flight to the podcast, you had the autonomy to walk around and take pictures because you were part of the band. So was this actually part of the video shot on the cover? Was that part of that filming of it? There was a scene. I mean, they were shooting something while Al was standing there and I was off to the side clicking away. And then I'm seeing one of, it looks like it's part of the Eat It video right around the end where he turns and he has the Thriller eyes. The thriller eyes, yes. Yeah, that's uh, them putting the, uh, they put, they like cut ping pong balls like into thirds and then sort of glued, not glued, but you know, with some sort of a adhesive, you know, temporary adhesive, put it over his eyes. And, you know, they were painted, I guess, or painted them after they were on there and then sort of touched up the adhesive so it blended into his skin. And instead of actually like cutting out, and and they look sort of like cat's eyes, so the the, uh, Mm -hmm. the pupil is is, uh, elongated. It's vertical. And instead of like putting a little hole in there so he could see, they just painted it on there. I mean, he literally had his eyes covered up. So he had to, once those were put on, he had to be led over. He was, uh, I guess, sitting on the bed or something. And then he kind of looked up into the camera and he had to be led over to the set, you know, by the hand because he he could not see. And I imagine... Were there any bloopers because of that? Or was he pretty aware of the space around him, even though his eyes were covered? Well, I mean, the only thing I can think of is that, uh, you know, if he sort of turned around and looked up into the camera, that he wouldn't really know, you know, they froze the frame when he did that, but he wouldn't really know if he had turned all the way into the camera lens. So that may have required a couple of takes. I'm not sure. He was pretty good about, you know, when they say, okay, your head's in the right position now, he'd be pretty good about finding that again. But in order to do that, he had to try it a couple of times, you know, and that's what that was for. I'm sure he was glad to get those off. And I always wonder, the equipment you were using, did you generally have a specific type of of rig or setup that you used throughout this time period or, or did it fluctuate based upon 
however you were feeling. Well, no, I only had like two nice cameras. And one was a camera that I'd gotten as, as a kid in 1974. I, I bought it from a bandmate and uh, it was used. And that was a Minolta SRT 101. And I didn't really have a bunch of different lenses. It was a standard, like, like maybe a 55 millimeter lens, so kind of a normal lens. And I just, uh, you know, if I needed to, I just, I moved in to get a close up. I'd have to move in on them. You know, I was right there taking pictures. But again, you know, I got to do that because I'm his drummer, you know, so he didn't stop me and nobody else stopped me. And, and honestly, there weren't any other cameras. Nobody else brought a camera to these things. And there was not like a, an official set photographer to do publicity stills. I was the only guy that did these things. And some of these from the Ricky and I Love Rocky Road videos, some of those did become published and, and were used kind of as publicity stills, but uh, none of the edit pictures that are in this book have ever been seen. And none of the uh, studio shots or the uh, Living with a Hernia video, none of that stuff had been seen before. None of those were ever printed or, I mean, Al had never seen those before. They were contact yeah. sheets and that's how they lived for 35 plus years. That's amazing. So I guess that leads to me to just wonder what inspired you to create the book and put this all together at this time? Well, I, I had one sort of archiving project that led up to this, and that was to finish archiving all of my audio tapes, cassettes and such, uh, to digital, because those things deteriorate after time. And once I had finished that, and it was probably early 2017, I think I'd, I had wrapped up all the tapes finally, I thought, well, maybe I should start thinking about scanning my negatives, you know, and preserving those. I mean, they they were stored carefully and they're in plastic sleeves and all that. But I thought, you know, it'd be nice to get those digitized. And if I ever want to do something with them, I've got them ready to go. So in, mm -hmm. in looking at all of those again, I sort of re-stumbled across these black and white photos. And they're really the only black and white photos I'd ever taken of Alan. The reason I'd never thought about them is they were a separate project. They were never printed. They were stored separately from uh, all of my other negatives because they were in a different mm -hmm. kind of a sheet and then they were stored with the contact sheet that was made from them and they were stored in another cabinet. So it wasn't something I came across very often. In seeing all of those, you know, I realized, you know, well, only a couple of these have ever been seen before. And I mean, there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. Maybe some of these would be cool. You know, I know that, you know, apart from the Ricky and I Love Rocky Road, the handful that have been seen, you know, the rest had not none of the eat it video, et cetera, et cetera. So I thought, well, this would be new to the fans. And uh, I asked Al about it, you know, and I said, I've got all these photos. This was like summer of 2017. And uh, I said, you know, do, do you mind if I publish them? And not knowing what publishing really you know, entailed, but I wasn't, I don't know if I was thinking about a book. I was just thinking of doing something, getting them out there somehow. And he said, yeah, you know, go for it. And, and that's kind of how it stayed for a few more years. So I didn't really get going on it for a little while. We had toured in 2018 and 2019. And it wasn't until after the 2019 tour that I really got started on this and scanned all of those negatives and and you know hooked up with a publisher and it happened. Yeah, wait, let's let's talk about that because that's interesting. You went with 1984 Publishing and they're located in Cleveland. I found it interesting that this time period 1984 falls within your time period of photos. Just wondering if there's any coincidence around your selection. Oh, you know what? I didn't even think of that. No, I was actually. I didn't seek him out. I, I actually was pointed towards, uh, it's Matthew Chonaki at right. 1984 Publishing. And I, it, as it turns mm -hmm. out, I had had a dealing with him. He put out a book several years ago called Put the Needle on the Record. And it was a book about uh, singles from the 80s. And he needed a scan of the I Love Rocky Road picture sleeve. And I'm one of only apparently two or three people that has one, or at least in, in good shape. Wow. So I sent him that. And, and he had, I think, got some quotes from Al. So I'd had some contact with him, but I'd forgotten all about it. I was actually pointed to them by a friend of ours from uh, Sony, who I had worked with the Squeeze Box booklet. I'd worked with him on uh, oh, yeah. putting that together, a bunch of photos for that. So he, uh, I, in passing, I mentioned on the 2019 tour, we were in New York and 
he was there after the show and I was just chatting. I said, you know, I, I don't know why I brought it up because I really hadn't thought about all these photos in a while, but I just happened to mention, you know, I said, well, I'm thinking about this book thing and of all these old photos. He says, oh, that, that's nice. How nice for you. And short time later, he sends me an email and says, uh, you know, when you're ready to move forward with the book, contact Matthew at 1984 Publishing and it might be a good fit. And a couple of more months went by and uh, I, I got a couple of rolls of my films test scanned just to see how it would turn out, what the resolution right. would look like. You know, I wasn't about to try and scan those myself. And they looked really good. And I went ahead and I took all the rest in. I thought, well, I, you know, I, I've got the name of a publisher and, and the scans are going to work. And let me get going on this. I know I have 2020 is going to be a year off from touring. So I got plenty of time to work on this. And I took all the rest of the roles in. And then in the meantime, I went ahead and I sent an email to Matthew and we got to talking about it. And within a week, I had signed a contract with him and that got the ball rolling. That was December of 2019. And that's what got it all started. I mean, that, that's where it really became official. And then I just began weeding through all of the photos and deciding what was usable and deciding, you know, I went through, I, I cleaned them all up, ran them all by Al just to make sure he was cool with them. And he was, he was fine with every single one of them. He didn't reject any of them. It's amazing. You mentioned Ricky a couple of times. So I went forward to a couple of the images from that video that you have shot. And there's one playing, uh, it looks like a, the conga drum. Oh uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then there's another where he's getting a bow tie on and it, he's kind of, he's kind of given me the stink eye in that a, a little bit, but I, I think, you know, he, he may have just turned around and seen me, you know, he may not have realized I was there. And when he turned around, that's when I took the picture. I don't think he was, he usually was pretty good about mugging for the camera or, or smiling or whatever. <laughs> I think, you know, I don't think he was disgusted with me. I think I just caught him before he smiled or something. I hope. And I remember as watching this video for the first time, I had to do a triple take. I was like, is that really weird, Al? You know, the mustache is gone. There's been a lot of questions. Is, is he wearing a wig? No, that is a wig. And as he was shaving off his mustache, I was taking pictures. Now, not black and white photos. I was carrying two cameras that day. So I have color photos of him cutting off his mustache. Wow. I think I may have put one or two of those on weirdal.com many years ago, but that's for another book another time, perhaps. That's right. Well, actually... You they always talk about the two eras of Al, you know, the, the glasses and the mustache, and then you got the goatee and, and the, the long hair. So it, there, this is really a unique, you know, look. You don't see this often, and your book really captures the energy with there well. And I'm looking ahead, and I, I'm not sure if they're looking at the Michael Jackson video, Neil Down. There's a TV set. Yes, that's exactly what they're doing. That's uh, Al's manager and the director of that video, Jay Levy, and they're looking at the uh, Beat It video to make sure they can match the look and the moves and, you know, the camera move and all that stuff. They're checking that, you know, before going into a, a scene. Obviously, not Al's not dressed up for that just yet. I mean, they're watching it, I think, before any, everything got started. But yeah, they would do that throughout the day. They would look and just make sure they've got the framing matched and, and the angles and all that stuff. And they were very meticulous about it. I mean, not all videos were copies of the original video, but Beat It pretty much was. Fat pretty much was. You know, Like a Surgeon had a lot of elements of uh, the original video in it. Smells like Nirvana. Smells like Nirvana, you know, was, was almost a frame by frame, you know, reproduction, you know, living with a hernia was very much the James Brown video. Right. And interested since you were behind the scenes here, is it typically that the track is already pre-recorded and you're playing the track? So there's at least a resemblance of parody that's happening. These are all after the, the song was done after the song was recorded and gotcha. And so they had the actual real song ready to go. I mean, in those days, mm -hmm. you know, up until not long ago, you know, when you recorded an album, you, you know, things were done well in advance of the album's release. 
they had to press the records. They, you know, they had to process the recordings. They had to press the records, you know, print the album covers, assemble everything, distribute them. I mean, it wasn't like once you had something mixed, it could be out that night like it is now. So in between the song being finished and then the album being actually produced was anywhere from four to six weeks. That's when the videos were done. And you know, as I'm moving through looking at some other photos or some other you know shots that you say were rare from the, the Eat It video scene, and there's one of the famous gang. It looks like it must be pre-fight. And the actors, these were the same actors from the original Beat It video. Well, one for sure. The, there's a, a guy off uh, the, the white gang leader in, in uh, both Beat It and Eat It are the same guy. It's Vincent Patterson. And I contacted him, you know, and, and asked him some questions just to get a little bit of information for that chapter. And uh, he told me something that I, I didn't know before. And I mentioned it in the chapter that, you know, regarding, uh, he says that it was he that came up with the idea of using the chicken between the two guys and that, which I'm not surprised, you know, I mean, this is a guy who worked with Michael Jackson and Madonna. I mean, he was, you know, so they, I'm sure they consulted him if he had any ideas for that or suggestions. So he suggested, I don't know how it happens. There was a rubber chicken there, but it somehow doesn't surprise me. Anyway, he said he ended up, he took the chicken home. He ended up, he still has the chicken. So (laughs) I thought that was pretty cool. See, that's something, if I thought about it, that's something I would have grabbed and I would still have the chicken. Right. I know you have many, many, I mean, you're the official caretaker of everything. Yeah. That's why I've never heard the word caretaker, but that's probably a, a very apt description. Yeah. I've got a lot of Al stuff, a lot of one of a kind stuff and, and an archive of all sorts of things. And I'm taking care of it till Al gets it one of these days or his uh, daughter, you know, inherits it and uh, you know, then she can throw it out. <laughs> And what does Al think of the book? Oh, he loves the book. Uh, he loves it. I mean, I kept him in the loop the whole time. I, I made sure he saw layouts as they were happening. And I ran all the text by him that I was writing. He wrote the foreword for the book. He was in on the whole thing. I mean, he saw it as it was progressing. But, you know, it's really different. I mean, it wasn't until he actually had a copy in his hand. And I mean, I hand delivered his copies to him. And I stood there while he'd like thumbed through it, like every page. And it was like, he was just like really digging it. And he'd seen all these photos. He saw how they were going to be laid out. But, you know, having a book in your hand is different. And he he loved it. He really enjoyed it, which I'm, I'm very happy about. That's yeah, an immersive experience. That's awesome. And then there's a photo in here and it's of you. And I could see your wall. I guess it's the wall of fame with a piano. Is this a shot from your, your home studio? That's my living room. And that was sort of the current shot of me and the can there's a camera around my neck and that's that original Minolta camera. And now in all fairness, although this is a book of all black and white photos, in all fairness, that was a color photo. Well, photo. It was taken mm-hmm. with my phone. So it wasn't even really film. But I doctored it up. I had to make it black and white to fit the theme of the book. And I did add a little film grain just so it would look a little, you know, a little kind of congruous. And so that was a color photo, I admit. But that goes on my uh, bio page which is a mercifully short page. It's like two sentences. and uh, Like your drum solos? Uh, yeah. Oh, it's even shorter than the drum solos. And, <laughs> okay. And, more, and definitely more tolerable. This was your self-portrait. This is my self-portrait, and this is, it's actually at the end of the book. And, you know, I mean, you know, God forbid you'd put me in the beginning. Actually, I was in the beginning. There's a shot of me with my camera and Al's face. And that's, that's actually, once you get into the book, that's the first photo you see. And that goes with the introduction, which I wrote. And then the next page is the photo that I actually took. And it's just this like close up of Al's face. And that's on the forward page, which he wrote. Now, this is kind of a two-parter, but so for you, is there a favorite 
you know, segment of this book. And then what have you heard from fans thus far? Are there favorite sections that you're hearing that are, are jumping out to them? Well, I like it all. And I think they like it all. I mean, there's nothing that's, mm-hmm. that's, uh, you know, because it's all new and it's all like really cool. Fair. I mean, it, it is hard to pick, but I mean, in looking at those, I mean, I can, I was reminded of the access that I had to just go stand in front of, you know, to run around the set while they're on the clock and to stand in front of Al and to, to you know, or to stand next to the camera while Al's doing a take and, and start snapping away. That would never happen now. I mean, he wouldn't allow that. And there is a photo in here that I was curious of, and I, I've seen this one posted, it was online. You're standing in front of an airplane. I'm trying to piece what that was from. Well, that was shot during the I Love Rocky Road video. And the reason there's an airplane mm-hmm. is that we shot it at a building that was like the diner or the cafe of like a little private airstrip a little north of LA. And that was, you know, again, that was easy to just get everyone together. And I handed my camera to Musical Mike, Mike Kiefer, the guy that does the hand music on uh, Al's early records. And any picture that I'm in, and I'm in a few in the I Love Rocky Road video chapter, Mike took. That was sort of an interesting process because there were a couple of people on set that I would have given the camera to, but they all denied it. And running it by Mike, he says, you know, he said, uh, well, I probably did. And because he and I do not appear in any pictures together, I'm going to have to say that it was him that took the pictures. So he gets a co-photographer credit on the book and he took that picture. But what's cool about that picture is it goes across two pages. This is a nine by 12 book. So that becomes a 12 by 18 photo. And it's the only picture, like the only clear picture of the whole band of Al and the band and Dr. Demento. And therefore it's a great picture. It's a great page to have signed. Now, it's still really early in the book's distribution for me to have run into anybody or for any of us to run into someone that's that you know walks up with a book, you know, here, will you sign my book? I mean, that's that'll start happening next time we're on the road. And if they can catch everyone in the band and if they can ever catch Dr. Demento for some reason, maybe an L.A. show or something, they would actually be able to get that page signed by all five of us. And that would be uh, that'd be a pretty rare book to have it signed by all of us. Yeah, that's great. And so going through the process, selecting the photos... Was that the hardest part of creating the book or it seemed like it moved fast, but was there a specific part of the journey that stands out to you? Well, it was all a process. I mean, I, I, uh, in looking at all the photos, it was actually pretty easy to weed out the photos that for, you know, various reasons, somebody moved and they were just a blur or, you know, the, the occasional shot that I took that was out of focus or whatever it was, you know, there were some shots I was able to just, you know, reject right off the top, but then going through the rest of them. Actually, probably what took the longest was going through and retouching all of the photos to make sure they were perfect. I didn't crop any of them. I mean, some of them got cropped a little for the book, but I submitted them in full frame, which is an eight by 12, two by three format. And, you know, I just wanted to make sure, you know, taken straight from the negatives, you know, they were pretty clean, but there's occasional scratches. There were some little specks. There's, you know, maybe a hair that didn't get blown off it and was, you know, shows up as a black strip on there or something. So I went through and spent anywhere from five to 10 to 15 minutes per frame, per image or more going through and just making sure they were clean, making sure the density was right, that, you know, if the other adjustments had to be made, whatever it was, you know, I wanted to make sure they looked as good as possible. And that took a while. It took a while to write all of the text and and stuff. And not that there's a lot of text, there's not. You would think uh, that, that probably took 10 minutes, but because uh, it only takes 10 minutes to read it all. But it took a while to research what goes in there. And I mean, unfortunately, I discovered and was reminded of a bunch of things after I had already submitted 
the book for printing, after it was a done deal, I learned a lot about some of these chapters. I mean, in the chapter one, I, I apologize in print for not remembering little Ricky's last name. I knew his first name was Sasha, S-A-C-H-A, and I did not know his last name. And I could not I couldn't find anyone that knew. I, I couldn't reach the director. Al didn't remember. Nobody I knew had a uh, call sheet for the video, which would have had all the information of who was in the video, who the crew, the call times, the address of the place, would have answered a lot of questions. Anyway, I found out very recently in looking at a, one of my color photos from the Ricky video, where I put the names of the people on the back of the photos, there was a lady in there standing with Sasha, you know, just started sort of a candid shot. And I said, that's his mom. And I looked at the back and it had her last name on it. It was Patricia Guzzi, G-U-Z-Y. So his name, and as soon as I put it together, Sasha Guzzi, it's like, ah, that's it. So if we ever... <laughs> If we ever do a reprint of the book, I'll be able to correct that. There were a couple of things I learned about the I Love Rocky Road video after the fact that I would have liked to have included, like the ice cream truck in there was the same ice cream that was in Cheech and Chong's movie Nice Dreams, for example. That's amazing. And when I found that out, I thought, that sounds vaguely familiar, but you know, Al never mentioned it. Nobody I talked to about that video ever mentioned that, although now it sounds familiar. So that's a fact I'll add in there. I did learn something new that uh, one of the ice cream girls on his arm that appears a few times uh, in the video is Erin uh, Everly, and she is the daughter of Phil Everly of the Everly Brothers, which is a nice pedigree in its own. But she went on to do to appear in some Guns N' Roses videos and actually married Axl Rose later on. So she became a, a little bit of a celebrity later on. You know, this this was 1983 was well before Guns N' Roses came on the scene. But, you know, that was sort of cool. And that's something I didn't I didn't know even then. I mean, I learned that much later. I was able to get in touch with the director of the video that I was not able to get in touch with in the very beginning. Again, after I wrote all this stuff and submitted it, then I was able to talk to him. So I, there were some things I learned from him that, again, I would have liked to include. So I've got a running list of uh, updates and other trivia that should I get a chance to rewrite this, you know, and expand upon it, I'll be able to flesh out those chapters a little bit more. Yeah. Sounds like you've got some revisions. And then yeah. I was thinking about, well, this is one era. I wonder if you have another era underneath your sleeve there. Well, I got tons of photos of Al and, and all the things that he and, and we do on the road and, and in the studio and on the bus and in each other's homes. I mean, I just, I always had a camera with me. And uh, I just, I snapped away, you know, and, th and that was it. You know, that was start of part of what I did. And that's, I think, why Al let me do that is because he just thought, well, that's, he's always got a camera. He just likes to take a lot of pictures. You know, I'll guess I'll just let him, you know. And, and I was also pretty good about making sure that he got copies of these photos. And there was also a point where they started getting used for stuff. I mean, starting with the Ricky video, we, uh, there were a couple of shots from that that were used. One of them got published in TV Guide couple got published in uh, Al's Complete Al, or I'm sorry, the Authorized Al book that he put out in 1985. The label used a couple of the photos for some things. You know, so, you know, there was a point where, you know, oh, it's handy having some photos that Bermuda took. You know, I guess, uh, you know, it's not that big of a deal. But I mean, I really took an inordinate you know, amount of photos. I mean, just like a ridiculously large amount of photos. And I, I wouldn't say that all of them are worth seeing, but I would say about 80% of them are. I mean, there's really, there's very few photos that are just, you know, useless, <laughs> which is, which is pretty good. I mean, if you want to say, you know, I, I, you know, the, I shot a bunch of photos and 20% of them are great. You know, well, that's really nice. You know, I, I, I like to think that more than, you know, more than uh, 50, 60, 70% of mine are great, you know, and worth seeing. So. As far as another volume someday, 
I mean, there are certainly enough photos to back it up. I mean, maybe there could be a book about life on the road. I mean, you know, now it would be all in color. I mean, I never shot any black and white on the road and I didn't do that because, uh, get, you know, not that I was trying to develop them because I didn't do it at home. But on the road, since we were in a different town every day, I had to go to one hour photo places to get my color done and they were not set up to do black and white. I mean, I, I knew that already because that's how I had my stuff done in LA. So black and white on the road was not an option. There are not any cool black and white photos of us backstage, for example. You could do now in color like they did at the old motels. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, and it, and it would be. That's a good title. Oh, I like that. Now in color. There you go. Future inspiration. But that did lead me to something because I'm I, thinking about it. I mean, there's been such legacy. I mean, you are so meticulous about everything that you've archived and worked through the years. And we've talked about in the past about how you connected with Al. Has, has there ever been a thought about you know, what happened if that day didn't happen? I mean, I don't know there's always a, a what if, but have you ever thought about if, would you be playing in another band or still taking photos? And Well, I, I, I still do take photos, not film anymore, but you know, I, I still shoot a lot of pictures. I, I'm certain I would still be playing drums. I don't know if I would have landed in some other well-known band. I mean, I've only run into a handful of people over my career that have really done anything and they've already, you know, got drummers. I mean, and if they're on their way up and nobody knows who they are and they become famous later, they already had a drummer. You know, there wouldn't have been an opportunity for me to be involved. I'd like to say that, you know, all of the original bands that I've been in in LA had potential. Uh, I don't know if they all did. Uh, I mean, honestly, you know, none of them ever really achieved near the fame of Al and, and most of them split up. I have a couple of long running associations with some bands, but, you know, uh, nobody's achieved the notoriety of Al. So, you know, who would I be playing with? Pro you know, I probably would still be playing with some of these other bands because I met them independently of Al. I mean, mm -hmm. I had a different musical path than just Al. You know, it's I would still be playing drums, but there wouldn't be any photos of Al from me. And, uh, you know, you probably wouldn't be talking to me now. Right. But that does lead me to another interesting tidbit is last time you said the band with Weird Al has been together. One of the longest running bands. You think about U2, I think we talked about. Yeah. And U2 is in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Has there ever been any talk about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and Weird Al Yankovic? Has that ever come up? Well, the fans think he should be in there. And I mean, I, I uh, you know, I mean, with over 30... Uh, so over 35 years worth of albums and number one album and videos and, and exposure on MTV and the longevity and everything that goes with all the things you think would qualify him. I think he should be in there, but it's not that simple. I mean, it's not just, I, I don't know if, if you can do a petition, you know, I don't know, uh, you know, they only let a certain amount of inductees in every year. So there's, you know, they, right. you know, if, if you can't get in one year, you know, there's a chance next year, but this has been going on for a long time. I think he should be in. You know, I just, I don't know exactly how to go about right. doing it and making it happen. Well, my hope is your book will be inspiration. It'll end up on people's coffee tables and someone from the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame voting committee will say, have we thought about Weird Al Yankovic? Well, that would be cool. I am told, the publisher knows uh, one of the curators at the Rock Hall, and mm -hmm. I am told that the book was destined to be in their gift shop. There we go. See, connection, you've got the Cleveland connection. Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Maybe there's something here, John. That would be pretty cool. If not, at least I can sell a couple of books. That's right. Exactly. It's been a complete pleasure catching up with you, hearing about your book. Once again, everybody, if you're looking for something that diehard Weird Al Yankovic fans out there, it's black and white and weird all over the lost photographs of Weird Al Yankovic, 83 to 86. And look up John Bermuda Schwartz. Yep. Thank you very much, Mark. You're welcome. And I hope Stay healthy, have a great one, and 
Thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you. All right. Welcome back from the interview. Hope you enjoyed catching up with John and hearing about his book. Ray, it's it's always fascinating to dive in and understand someone's thought process when they're putting something together, whether it's music, whether it's a book. And I think it's fascinating how John selected these photos to really capture this time period. And there was one specific thing that I thought was interesting. If you recall on Polka Party, he did Living with a Hernia. Remember that one? It was the James Brown spoof. Yep. And that album wasn't commercially successful. It was one of the the lesser known albums, but actually it was one of my favorites. And I always used to laugh a lot about the songs that were on this album. And I was always surprised how certain albums, I don't know whether it's there's a certain song or maybe because John was saying they released like four in a row that maybe by the fourth one, people just kind of ran out of energy. I just, it is interesting how some things just don't stick. Yeah. You know, that's always part of it, right? You know, you'll you'll have artists who put a lot of work into something and it doesn't do what they thought it was going to do. And then times where you seem to hardly do anything and suddenly you got a hit on your hands, you know? And I mean, I remember Polka Party, Living with the Hernia was the big one, you know, Addicted to Spuds, you know, I mean, it was, you know, it's classic Al stuff, you know, and it came out, I guess, and I remember it because the one that got me hooked on Weird Al was Dare to be Stupid. Uh, that was the one that was like the, remember, actually, I remember playing that cassette to death. And part of it was because I liked the movie Johnny Dangerously. I knew the words to This Is The Life by heart. I mean, I used to walk around singing that song, right? Monogram Kleenex? Yeah, you know, my bathtub's filled with Perrier, you know, you know, I mean, I just, I mean, I, I, you know, I only remember bits and pieces now because it's been 35 years, but, you know, I, I literally used to walk around just singing that song course i used to listen to the whole tape and that you know yoda and georgia the jungle and all the other stuff that was on that and so you know polka party was the next album and so as you said you know part of it is sort of that they did they were releasing like you know an album a year they're boom one after the other after the other they had it was you know it's like so much material that it kind of got lost in the shuffle i think and and i think that's part of what happened then was it yeah you had a two-year break before even worse came out and so then there was also the i don't know weird al you know one of the things that made him in the 80s was also his connection to Michael Jackson. So Eat It was the song that did it. And then when Fat came out in 1988, it was again, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to take on Michael Jackson's song. And that sort of helped cement his legacy there. And so I think that the, that sort of in-between time gets a little bit lost in the shuffle. And how fragile we are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's weird I'll ever done a Sting song. I don't think. Uh, Not sure. It, it could have been one of those where the artist was like, I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, Sting maybe takes himself too seriously. I don't know. You know, or, or just I don't know if there's a song out there that, that lends itself well. You know, that's but I do, if, if I am correct, and you're stretching my Weird Al knowledge right here, I do believe that it isn't one of the polka medleys. Oh, I could have sworn like Synchronicity 2 or something made it into one of the Polka medleys, but that's that would uh, that would require some work for me to remember that. <laughs> there are some possibilities. You know, every little thing she does is tragic. You know, that would be, uh, you know, that you could play with some some of that, those songs. And, you know, <laughs> I'm trying to think of, you know, you could have a, a Gilligan's Island poof and it's Marianne. You know, you don't have to, you know, whatever, something, you know, I'm trying to think of, you know, there, there are possibilities. Something with maybe every breath you take. I think that was the song that made the polka medley. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, that would make that would make sense given how big of a hit it was. So, but the reason I am babbling about Sting is that I saw recently through music to help us get through everything together, you featured mm-hmm. a Sting Fragile song 
And I know we were going back and forth because I've been listening to a lot of Sting lately. And mm-hmm. you wrote yourself a Sting send tune, which I need to get up on the site. And it's amazing that certain songs do help you get through things. Yeah. Um, Sting's music did that for me in like the, the mid 90s. His uh, greatest hits came out. And his hit off of that was uh, When We Dance. And uh, there was a period for about two years there where, I mean, I just, I listened to that constantly. And I don't know if it was a getting me through anything because there wasn't necessarily anything I needed to get through with that. It was just like good, soft, like nice mood music that I would write to, I would read to, I would, you know, just sit and relax to, you know, something about that, that greatest hits that brought everything together really well. And, you know, Sting's music's kind of like that. Yeah, I agree. And just looking at some of the most recent posts that we've been touting on Toonsmate, I've still been having a lot of fun with the working remotely. And recently, I think you pointed me to, you sent me over a list of songs like, hey, check these out. And I found this Nuno Betancourt mm-hmm. and Nancy Wilson doing Barracuda. So I went down this path of checking out what they were doing. And it's amazing the craftsmanship, what he is doing just in his home studio with all these other players. The music that's getting created right now, it's going to be really wild when all this stuff just starts getting released. Yeah, I think I think you're right. The idea that, you know, kind of like with John with his book, you know, you got with staying home, people are, you know, there's kind of this, there's two ways about it. Some people are having trouble finding their creative energies because they need outside stimulation to do that or interaction with folks to do that. But other artists, you know, this is like, okay, cool. I get to just batten down the hatches and write stuff. And it's just amazing some of the stuff that they get done. And I think, yeah, I find that you've posted a couple of them from Nuno Betancourt. I just, you know, that's amazing because we haven't, you know, we haven't really heard from Nuno a whole lot. I mean, he's been doing things, but, you know, since Extreme broke up, you know, there's, you know, he's just kind of been out of the limelight and here's this stuff that he's doing. And I, I think it's just great to see Nuno, you know, getting some play out of this. Yeah, I think a lot of artists are having that opportunity now because, like you said, there's some that are on the wayside and there's some that are thriving in it. And I don't know, Bray, I, I just been having a blast catching up and you know, I'm always interested to see the stats and the facts that are released in the daily 80s <laughs> flashback yep. and everyone out there if if you are not subscribed to tunesmate make sure to do that not only the podcast but our blog you can do that straight on our site watch our tweets and everything that we're posting throughout social media it's fascinating stuff if you are a music fan Ray, any final wrap-up words? No, I think, uh, you know, it was a great interview. Really uh, love hearing from John. You know, he's been generous enough to be on a couple times now. And uh, given, you know, we both, you know, think highly of Weird Al. And, you know, we both are on board with the idea, you know, Weird Al get some consideration for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. You know, I think that there's a really good argument there that what he's done over four decades now is, is significant. Agree. And we talked about it again. John reminded me the first time he was on that their band has been together just as long as you 2 and yep. I think he threw out a couple other bands. But if you think about it, I mean, the band itself has been together just as long as anyone else yep. and has, we talked about that stat about Weird Al and being in the top 40, I believe it was for, was it four decades? I'm pretty yep. sure because we were talking, it was like Madonna, Weird Al, one of the former podcast episodes we did, but there is some staying power there. Yep. You can't deny it. <laughs> so you could try. Everyone forgets. Some people will. You know, I wear my Weird Al t-shirt out. Some people will be like, wow, yeah, Weird Al, you know. And I'll say, yeah, I saw him in concert, you know, and it was really, really a great concert. And 
some people be like, yeah, I can just imagine. And, and other people like, yeah, I guess if you're into that kind of thing, you know, and it's there's a certain bias against parody and this kind of ridiculous music kind of thing. This music that's meant to be funny and fun and just, you know, so, okay, well, I'm not going to take it seriously as music, except that it has serious ramifications it matters to people and it, it's influenced things and and that's what the rock and roll hall of fame is all about exactly and i always get oh he's still around yeah and yeah. weird Hell has said this that people always forget about him in between albums and then he comes back and they're like oh yeah weird al and then it's a lot of times it's a new audience it's a whole new generation so we'll see what happens to the future enjoy john's <laughs> book and without further ado i'm mark and i'm ray and we will see you next time.